Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. This is Out of Bounds. Out of Bounds. With your host, Ryan Henfield. Out of Bounds. On WEI.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Out of Bounds podcast, where we will preview Game 2 of the Eastern Conference Finals between the Celtics and the Heat. Today we have former Miami Heat guard and also a Boston College alum, Malcolm Huckabee. What's happening, man? Hey, I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to this series. Obviously, everybody's pumped up about this, and I'm ready to roll. Before we get into the series, you have an excellent piece up on the Green Street blog where you talk about your history with uh, both the Heat and Coach Eric Spolstra. Can you talk about, you know, can you give us the Cliff Notes version of that piece? Yeah, it was definitely a fun piece to write. I remember Eric Spolstra or Spolstra, and I remember him as E or Spo, as we called him back in the day when I was an undrafted free agent guard for coming out of Boston College. And uh, when I inked my deal, Eric was kind of the guy uh, that we uh, viewed as the video guy for Coach Pat Riley at the time. And he started off in 1995 um, as the video coordinator for the Miami Heat. Um, and you know, I posted a, a article about him because a lot of times you don't really get to hear the story behind some of these assistant coaches that work their way up. Uh, you look at guys like Tom Thibodeau and so forth. These guys work dungeon hours, uh, long hours, and uh, get very little credit. Back in 1996-97, uh, assistant coaches really didn't get that much credit as they do now. And uh, I felt it was just you know, a fun piece to talk about Eric, and obviously he's come a long way. And uh, the Celtics actually have a guy, uh, Tyrone Liu, who actually is known for shutting down um, Allen Iverson, who I believe Jeff Van Gundy in last night's broadcast gave him a little credit. But you kind of remind me of that from being in the locker room, being around the team. I do get a sense that... You know, lose a guy that probably is more of a high profile since he actually played in the league um, than, you know, Coach Spo as Chris Bosch and you were going to refer to him as. But um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, so many times you hear people kind of talking about how, I was even watching the game with my buddy last night. He's like, oh, you know, Coach Spo is a figurehead for Pat Riley. I don't really buy into that, right? I mean, you agree with that. No, right? I don't. And I think, you know, you look at the history of where he's coming. I talk about it in the in the piece that I wrote. You talk about the family history where his dad was a longtime executive in several NBA teams. Um, you look at the wealth of knowledge that you had down at the Miami, not just Coach Riley, but Stan Van Gundy was an assistant when I was down there in the 96-97 season. Bob McAdoo, I talk about the, uh, in that piece as well, just the knowledge he had. I mean, this guy led the league in scoring back in his heyday when he played, yep. when guys like uh, George Gervin were playing. So this guy, you know, obviously was a wealth of knowledge. And then you look at the time that Eric put into breaking down film, um, and Riley really was a guy that started when he was with the Knicks, where film really before was more known as a football thing, where, you know, you go, you know, guys, a quarterback would look in the film room or a defensive back would look at film of a quarterback and try to pick up different tendencies. Well, Back in 96, 97, film was really starting to come into and evolve into the NBA. And Eric, I, I tell you, I mean, both he and, you know, Stan Van Gundy, they would literally function on three hours of sleep. I mean, I'd come in, you know, and you'd see these guys with the, you know, and, and coming back into the practice facility, and they literally would sleep there sometimes. And In the piece you talk about, I believe it's Dwayne Wade that you said he's fixing his shooting balance. And that's, is that, do you think that was due to, I mean, well, so in basically in the piece, you talk about how Dwayne Wade was like his equilibrium was kind of thrown off and Spo had noticed it. Is, is that due to, due to like the video study that you talked about? Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I know from firsthand knowledge, you know, just doing drills with Eric, um, you know, and also uh, Coach Stan Van Gundy at the time, those guys are very knowledgeable in terms of just breaking down not only just 
the defensive end, but obviously on the offensive end, and I work with him over and over. He was trying to work on my mid-range game. I came in known as a three-point shooter coming out of Boston College and a very good defender. Really didn't have a, a mid-range game. So one of the things that I worked on every day with Eric before practice was just working on mid-range jump shots. And he would talk to me about balance. He would go over, and then we would look at things on film. He would break it down. Hey, your feet aren't set. Getting your feet underneath you. And just little things that he would pick up on. And a lot of times as a player, you don't see yourself doing certain things, but then uh, coaches always say film, film does not lie, and he was definitely a master at doing that, breaking down your offensive game. But when they signed you, I, you there was an acronym you used in the piece, but it's actually escaping right now. Uh, dependable. PhD. No, yes, PhD. That, yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. Co- Coach Riley called me a PhD. He said, you know, and uh, in the quote, uh, he talked about uh, I probably should have been playing defensive back uh, at the time for the Dolphins because uh, I was a toughness. And look, Riley really liked those type of guys because. Yeah. Uh, we had the stars on the team. You know, we had the Lonzo Mornings. We had the Tim Hardaways. Uh, we had the Jamal Mashburns. But when you're building a team, you need those guys that are going to do the little dirty things. We had a guy uh, when I was down well, what there. What does PhD stand for? Sorry. Poor, hungry, and desperate. There it is. <laughs> yeah, that, that was what escaped me. And, and you know, he you know he, he joked about that. And we had guys, a guy probably was, you know, at the time a little bit more established, but he was another PhD and a guy by the name of P.J. Brown who actually spent some time up with the Celtics. Yeah. He was a teammate down there. This guy was the absolute professional, and you know Riley liked those type of guys. Where hey, look, I didn't really have the luxury to come in there and uh, you know be lackadaisical. You know, hey, coach, I'm not I'm not going hard today. Look, I was an undrafted free agent, so I had to bring it every day in practice. Yeah, but uh, incongruously, so Spo has to kind of deal with. I mean, there's the famous line last year where Chris Bosh was like, "We just want to chill." Like, so you know, he's not really dealing with you know the quote PhD guys. How do you feel that like translates? Because it obviously is a stars league. There's only ten guys on the floor at once. The stars really matter in the NBA. I mean, you need the grit players. Like you know, the Celtics have Greg Stiesma, Keon doing those type of guys. Can you talk a little bit about how it must kind of be coaching guys like that. Well, I think you know the way that NBA staffs are constructed now. I think are no different from college staffs, where you have obviously the head coach that is kind of you know you look at it. He's the ringmaster, right? So he's the guy that's you know making all the the key decisions. But you also have the assistants, and I look at Bob McAdoo, who's on that bench there. Everybody respects Bob McAdoo. I mean, look, the guy. You know, any kid growing up, you know, you watch those. You know, him in his heyday when he was playing. Um, and then you also they have Keith Askins, who's also who's you know I think a ten year, ten to twelve, twelve year vet on that bench. So a lot of times those guys are in their ear talking to them about how you approach the game, how you actually approach the off season, and so forth. So. Uh, and it's no different with what Doc had. You know, you look at it, he's got Tyron Lue on there. Mm-hmm. Before he lost, you know, a guy like Thibodeau, he was on there as well too. And then, you know, you look at some of the other assistants that he has. So I think that's really how uh, NBA coaching staffs are constructed now, where it's not always coming from the head coach per se. A lot of times that's an assistant where he's assigned to a guy where, okay, McAdoo is going to deal with like LeBron. And, yeah, <laughs> and, and that's, you know, I think that's how, you know, you have to do it. And I think really – you know, I had a chance to listen to Chuck Daly um, back in the day when I was playing for Boston College. Chuck Daly actually coached my former coach, Jimmy O'Brien, and oh. he had some great stories. And actually, Bob Cousy coached my my former coach as well, too, uh, Jimmy O'Brien, and he had some great stories. Um, but I remember listening to um, I, I listened to Chuck Daly, who um, passed away unfortunately, um, and he talked about really his heyday when he was coaching the Detroit Pistons. And it really was just dealing with personalities. And I remember him talking about – They coached the dream team too. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and he talked about really a coach's job at – once you get to the NBA level, and I think on any level, you're dealing with personalities. So certain guys you have to 
coach them and approach them a certain way. And then another guy, you can yell at him all you want. And he talked about Joe Dumars where I knew what I was going to get from Joe Dumars every day. Yep. He was about as consistent. I knew what he was going to do in practice. I knew what he was going to do in the game. And then Isaiah, you know, he's like, hey, maybe I had to approach him a little bit different. And then he had Dennis Robin. <laughs> and it was like, okay, well, hey. Before and I remember, he's the worm, really, well, too, yeah. And I remember him talking about, hey, look, Dennis may show up, I don't know, like five, <laughs> ten minutes before the game. But I knew when I got him there and the ball you know, the, you know, the ball went up, then I knew he was going to go and he was going to get me, you know, 15 offensive rebounds or whatever it was. Yeah. And, you know, we were going to win games. But I had to approach him differently in terms of how I managed him. I think uh, it's no different from what Eric Spolester is um, doing right now as long as well as Doc Rivers. And do you think it benefits, this is the last coaching question, but do you think it benefits that McAdoo was like a star back in his day? Um, Keith Askins, if I remember, was kind of like a gritty two-guard, almost like a John Stark stands the offense, I would say. Do you think it kind of helps to have like a guy that used to be a star and a guy that was just, you know, probably a role player on your coaching staff? So maybe like, maybe Askins approaches like Mario Chalmers is like, hey, here's your role, blah, blah, blah. Whereas McAdoo may be like, hey... To bo- to the you know the super friends, uh, he may go up to Bosch, LeBron, and Wade, and say, you know, back in my day, this is how we handled things. Do you think it kind of ha- helps to have that diversity on staff? Absolutely, and I think you know any coaching staff, you look at it, and look, I, I, every team is constructed differently, but I think you look at overall, you look at how coaching staffs are constructed. They have a certain makeup of players. You look at San Antonio. Um, you know, Popovich does a great job. Those guys all buy into what he's basically pitching them. And then you look at, and obviously Rick Carlisle, you look at Doc Rivers, obviously these guys all played the game. Um, you look at Phil Jackson and Pat Riley, obviously those guys played at a high level. Um, but it's a respect thing. And I think also you get a certain type of player um, that these guys all have pride. So you don't really need to have tell a Kevin Garnett uh, how important this game is or why he should play hard. And I think it's likewise for even LeBron and also Dwayne Wade. All these guys are super competitive. I don't care. Across the board, we didn't want to lose anything. I know when I was down in Miami, I didn't want to lose any one-on-one drill to uh, Tim Hardaway at the time, who was a point guard, and Eric Murdoch was on that team as yep. well, too. And we, you know, there was always either fisticuffs in, in practice or, you know, just we got really physical because nobody wanted to lose. So, just by nature, we're all competitive as it is anyway, and I, I think you know the personality and also how you actually deal with those players is the coach's job. So the overwhelming consensus is that the Heat are going to win this series. Most pundits have it going six, some have it going five, some have it going seven. What are your takeaways, your general takeaways from game one? Do you think there's anything you see that maybe could shift? I mean, obviously the Celtics got beat, but do you think there's anything that you saw that maybe the Celtics could take away and say, hey, we can compete with this team. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think people would be making a mistake to think that Miami is going to actually walk through this. I you know, listened to LeBron get interviewed at halftime, and you know, he mentioned there was a question asked to him, is why do they think something along the lines of, well, why did, you know, why did they give up that lead? And he said, well, because the Celtics are a good team. And you know, that, I think, is where people are, are failing to realize. And I actually like the matchup with the Celtics. I mean – if you look at if the Celtics could cut down on some of the easy buckets that they gave up in the first, second, and third quarter, um, really they were layups. I mean, you look at what Miami shot for that game, they shot 20% from the three-point line. Yeah. And, you know, really Wade and Wade and LeBron got off because I felt they gave up. There were some breakdowns on defense, and they got some careless turnovers early in that first quarter, which was atrocious. But if they can cut down on the easy buckets – and then you look at, I didn't think the Celtics played that bad in terms of offensively in the first quarter. They had some good looks. Ray had some good looks. Um, you know, KG obviously played great. But Rondo had obviously a not not a Rondo-like first quarter. 
if they can cut down on the easy buckets and then Ray maybe knocks down some of those shots and makes free throws, which I can't just – it's baffling right now that he's shooting – you know, he's shooting career lows in the playoffs Yeah, he right missed now. 12 in the – he missed 12 – he's missed 12 so far in the playoffs. Missed nine all season, which is, you know, he's a career 90%. He's shooting 60% or something like that. Um, really quick, LeBron shot three three-pointers, missed all of them. He missed nine total shots. That's a player to me, and Wade only took one three-pointer and missed his only attempt. That's a player to me that realizes, hey, I need, I'm a star. I can get to the rim. I'm probably going to get some calls, and that's where I'm going to shine. You know, I'm going to take it to the basket. This is the playoffs. No time to mess around. Should the Celtics implore a zone? Because one of the games earlier this season, they came back using a zone. Is that is this the type of defense maybe you should do that to kind of prevent you know, LeBron from penetrating? Yeah, and I think, you know, that's going to be, you know, one of the key things to see. But, you know, coaches as a whole really don't like playing zone. Yeah. Most coaches don't. You just don't see it that much in the NBA. Uh, and I'm not sure if it's just a matter of guys aren't used to playing zone and then also it throws off the rebounding and so forth. You don't want to give guys too much, e- too many easy looks. But, you know, obviously I think really instead of playing zone, you obviously want to force LeBron and also Dwayne Wade into becoming jump shooters. And I think yeah. that's going to be their best chance. I think early on in that game, really up through the third third quarter, uh, they got way too many easy buckets, uncontested layups. Um, and that's what you want to avoid and cut down on if you're the Boston Celtics. So I don't think necessarily they need to go to zone. And then I think, you know, you look at some of the open looks that they got. Um, you know, Ray obviously is hurt. I mean, look, I you know I remember Ray coming in from South Carolina, Mister Mister Basketball coming out of South Carolina as a little freshman uh, yep. playing for UConn, and you know the guy, what he's done is unbelievable. Um, you know, obviously he's hurt, and he's not going to talk about it. But anytime Ray Allen is missing, I saw him miss two free throws in a row. Yeah, it just that just doesn't happen. Um, you know, and it throws everything off. I know, obviously my career ended because of an ankle injury. When you don't have your legs underneath you, uh, it becomes very difficult. Um, to push to off. make shots and push off and look, Ray had some look, you know some clean looks. Uh, yeah. It wasn't like they were contested three. He had some clean <laughs> looks. And Ray Allen obviously is going to go down probably as one of the best shooters in the game. And you know for him to miss wide open looks and then come back and hit free throws, obviously that tells you his legs aren't there. Yeah, and he's told us before the in, in the games before the locker room. He's you know I ask him every time how the ankles today because he says it's day to day with bone spurs until he really gets surgery to repair whatever the ailment is. Um, He's not going to be right. Got you know, good for him for trying to battle through. Obviously, this is kind of the last gas of the big three. I get it, um, but it is it's difficult to walk watch kind of because he is the greatest three point shooter of all time. Well, on the other side, uh, you know, you have a guy like Paul Pierce who struggled all uh, all playoffs shooting because of his MCL injury, suffered against the Hawks in the first round. Um, now, the difference I thought between Game One and the rest of this playoff run is that Pierce has been managing to get to the line regardless of whether he's shooting well or not. And the fact that he shot 5 of 18, whatever, usually he's been able to get to the line in the playoffs, um, sometimes 13, 14 times a game. But what worried me last night was that he didn't get to the line at all. Um, not at all. And he had only two rebounds. And the Celtics are the worst worst rebounding team in the league. Um is that just due to LeBron? Is it just so much of a physical toll on defense to cover LeBron? And obviously, LeBron was successful last night. So, that is what. What do you think about that matchup, kind of going forward? Well, I, you know, that's kind of the dream matchup right now. I mean, both those guys. I, you know, listen to Van Gundy, Jeff Van Gundy, talk about. You know, Paul Pierce is a bull, right? And he's one of the few guys that actually physically can match up to LeBron, both in the post and then 
obviously on the offensive end, Paul Pierce, you know, he is the truth. I love that nickname. He is the truth, and the guy can score. And he made some nice moves in that game. There were a couple times where I felt he, him and both Rondo took some bad shots. They got out of control, um, and they didn't get some calls that normally Paul Pierce would get. Um, I think a lot of that has to do is, look, that was a tough series, you know, that they just came – I mean, Philly, you know, look, Iguodala is a a tough matchup for Paul Pierce because he's a young guy. They want to get out and run. So I think there was a little bit of fatigue. Um, I felt Pierce settled down, you know, late in that game. He was spotty at times. Um, I think he's going to bounce back and have a good game. And obviously he's – either he or Ray are not going to talk about their knee. They're not going to talk about their ankle. But obviously Paul Pierce doesn't have the lift that he normally does. Um, and he's just kind of grinding it out. So, you know, I, I, I think I expect him to come back and have a better game. Um, but I think that is a key matchup along with, obviously, what Rondo does. The Celtics now, notoriously this season, have had these stretches where they just can't score the ball. They come out, they score 11 points in the first quarter. Garnett looked great. He was something like 4 for 5, or the rest of the team was 2 for 16 at one point. Then the second quarter, they explode for 35 points, but then they come out at halftime and struggle again. What can you kind of attribute to these offensive lulls? I mean, is there anything to kind of, like, what is going on with these lulls? Well, I think the the reason why you're seeing a guy like KG put up the numbers that he is is because the advantage right now is with KG in that matchup. I mean, Ronnie Terry, believe me, there's no he has no chance of guarding KG one on one. Yeah, he's a PhD, <laughs> and I think he's undersized, and KG is going to work, and that's why at one point KG I think was five or six early in the game, um, and he wasn't missing. The guy was on fire. Look, LeBron and also Dwayne Wade, there was a few times where I think Wade and also LeBron came from behind and blocked Rondo's shot. Um, and, then and they had 11 a, blocks as a team. And then there's the same thing with Paul Pierce as well, too. So one of the things, and I know Eric, and look, Riley was, you know, for all the you know, glamour for the Lakers teams and, you know, the Miami Heat team when I was down there as well, we focused on defense. The Knicks teams, too, were notorious in the early 90s. I mean, look, and, and I think this goes back to the film piece where people don't realize how many films are sent to the league during the course of a season. Uh, the video guy's breaking it down. Hey, look, you're calling hand-checking on this game, but you're not calling hand-checking on this game. And they try to manipulate how the refs are actually calling the games. But make no mistake about it, I think Miami, and one of the emphasis that they really focused on in this series and in any series is they want to defend and they want to use their No length. easy baskets. Yeah, and they're a long, athletic team. That's where I think – Losing Chris Bosh hurts him in this series because he's another long guy that you have there to defend KG. And then also when Rondo's in the lane, you got another long body that's bothering and, and clogging up things. So well, they're your, a very good defensive point, team. How about that move where, you know, they call it the Rondo, obviously. We did the ball fake. I think it was on Terrioff or, no, it was on Shane Batty, actually. LeBron from behind, you know, came off his, came off his um, you know, came off his, uh, his assignment, made a great, I mean, obviously it was at the end of the shot clock, but. It was still that. I think that talked to the, the, you know, that was obviously a film study type moment, right? I mean, Absolutely. That's a Tennessee, that's a Rondo move. Well, I want to, first of all, correct you on the Rondo move because that's a Huckabee move. <laughs> and I want you to go back and find a video. Malcolm Huckabee, freshman year, first game against Memphis State. We upset Memphis State and then we go down to Duke. But I had the little Rondo move way before Rondo did. I had the high top fade. I should have trademarked that thing. I had that thing going. I don't even know why the heck I did it. But. Um, you know, yeah, you're right. I do remember that play. Rondo came down. He did the little up fake, and I believe it was Battier went for it. Yep. And he thought he had a clear-cut layup, and then, boom, here went comes up. LeBron. But I think it Backside. was more, that's what LeBron and Wade do. They're one of those guys that a lot of times they'll, let, safety, you think, right? yeah, they'll yeah. let you think you got a free one, and then they're coming out of nowhere to block your shot. And I think that goes back to the athleticism of Miami, why they're able to bother Miami. And it was very interesting how they started off this game because one of the things I touched on in pieces 
who actually defends Rondo. And I felt they put Chalmers on there, and I thought Rondo would have a field day. And early on, he actually got Ray some open looks. He got mm-hmm. Bass some open looks. They didn't knock him down. But then you saw late in the third put quarter, they yeah. put Wade on him. So They had him sagging off doing the Kobe Bryant defense that the Lakers used in 08, I think a little bit in 2010, too, because until Rondo starts making those jumpers, and he's shown a little proclivity to be able to do so from time to time. And I asked Keon Dueling about this after the uh, Game 7 win against Philly. He's like, when Rondo gets in rhythm and knows he has to shoot, like that's why you see Rondo knock down a lot of three-pointers at the end of the shot clock, because when he knows he has to shoot, so he gets himself his feet set, he's actually a pretty good you know, shooter, but... The problem is a lot of times you seem kind of like hesitate, dribble, dribble, top the key. Nothing's really popping open. So then he just takes like an out of rhythm jump shot and, you know, it doesn't look good. That's kind of what the, I think the key, heat kind of dared him to do a little bit when they had Wade sagging off. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, so with Miami, they're able to get away with it because they're so athletic with LeBron, Wade out there and Battier is playing or really, I mean, he gave them great, you know, I, I mean, he, I think he was kind of the X factor for Miami in that game, both on the defensive end and offensively he hit some big shots, but Rondo, no free throws either, by the way. Yeah, and, you know, look, Rondo, I think you know people make the mistake of thinking, all right, well, he's got the conventional game, but Rondo is who he is as a player, and he puts so much pressure on the defense where he probes. He doesn't allow you to force him into doing something that you want him to do. And I think against Miami, they figured it out where, look, we have the length. We can put somebody like Wade on there, or we can even put the Chalmers on there, but we're so long where we're sagging off where we can recover. And I felt, you know, early in that game – they didn't play that bad. Rondell did what he did where he got into the lane. Time, yeah. yeah, he got into the lane. And, you know, in that first quarter, although it was a bad shooting first quarter for uh, the Celtics, they got some good looks. I mean, yeah. Ray had some clean looks. Bass, Bass had yep. some clean looks in that. And they just weren't going in. So, you know, maybe you credit to obviously Ray's ankle wasn't there. And then Bass, maybe there's a little fit, bit of fatigue from the, the Sixers series. But, you know, they did not play that bad. Uh, albeit there was a few careless turnovers by Rondo early in the game. But, you know, if they can, like I said, go back to, you know, I think the game plan, if I'm Doc Rivers coming into this next game, cut down on the easy buckets for Miami, turn LeBron and Wade into three-point shooters, and not necessarily using using his zone, but just, hey, have them pack it in, dare them to shoot. Win the 50-50 balls, too, has to be something, too, right? I mean, yeah. they got out-rebounded. Uh, they actually only had eight turnovers, so that's something the Celtics have, you know, it plagues every NBA team, dumb turnovers, but I thought they did a good job. They only had eight, and... Um, but yeah, out rebounded uh, forty eight to thirty three. It's plus fifteen for Miami. The Heat shot fifty percent from the field, and I think you kind of touched on this earlier. A lot of it was because they were able to get inside the lane, get easy baskets, fast breaks, breakaways, whatever. Um, that said, you were on some pretty. You were in the ninety seven Heat team, yeah, with Morning Hardaway, um, Mashburn, no. Mashburn, yeah, Mashburn. You guys, Marley, were Dan, Marley, expected to be good, expected to make deep runs. Um, if the Celtics can make this a tight game. And you're number one seed, and you're kind of expected with a number two seed, but with the Bulls out of the picture, they're they're favored. In a close game, the Heat have shown, particularly LeBron James, and I want to harp on it, a tendency to tighten up. The Celtics, meanwhile, are kind of proven. You know, that you hear a lot around here like grit. They're a gritty team. Is there any credence to that? Yes and no. I, I you know I think you know LeBron obviously you know he gets a lot of the blame when the Heat lose. Um, you know I, I look. The Celtics are a very good basketball team. And I think the NBA really is a game of matchups. And you look at the teams that really have the edge in the matchup, and then they exploit it. And, you know, you look at the point guard position right now, and I think Rondo has the edge. You know, they got Chalmers out there, and I'm sure, you know, Eric is basically challenging his point guards and saying, hey, are you going to keep Rondo out of the lane? And, you know, I think, you know, you look at that. But case- does the summer, the, the, the pressure of, like, 
another summer of they didn't win and you know LeBron they had the huge you know block no. party thing LeBron's like not one championship not two not three I mean you were on teams that you know were expected to make it far and and I mean they are in the Eastern Conference Finals and for most teams no matter what that's a pretty good season but the Heat I think it's if not championship or bust it's definitely Game Seven or bust in the, in the NBA Finals so like. Does that at all get into your head a little bit? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, from a fan standpoint, yeah, you know, people are thinking about that. But when you're on the court, you know, and, you know, I've had people ask me this, even going back to the days of playing in the Carrier Dome, I'm like, hey, look, you know, it's 32, 30, 33,000 people. Do you see the fans in there? No, when you're out on the court, you're locked in. You don't yeah. even, you know, they ask, you know, people ask, hey, you know, when you're shooting free throws and people are going crazy behind the basket and, you know, all that, does it bug you? No, you don't notice that because you're so locked in. I think, what people don't realize is that you drill this stuff. It's almost become second nature to you. It does become second nature to you in terms of end-of-the-game situations. It's another thing I touch in, in my pieces. You're drilled so much, and I remember from college on up, obviously, into the professional ranks, at the end of every practice, you would work on end-of-the-game situations. Down three with the ball, what do you do? You know, Up four, up five, uh, You know, with the ball, what are you going to do? What are you going to do for substitution patterns? You're down four, you know, Three minutes to go, what are you doing? What kind of shots do you want to get? What kind of looks do you want to get? So coaches drill this stuff so much where you're out in the court, you really don't think about that stuff. You're not thinking, you know, LeBron's not thinking, all right, well, it's a tie ball game or we're down one. Uh, you know, there's 15 seconds to go. I got to make a play. Uh, he's not thinking to himself, oh, my God, I had that block party. And, you know, <laughs> I, I promised, you know, the Miami Heat fans that we're going to win, you know, four championships. No, I think it comes down to preparation. And I really firmly believe this. Players make plays. Players win games. Now, coaches put you in the right position. Uh, I think it's across the board in any sport, baseball, football, basketball. Uh, you look at Belichick, great, he, Grant, he's a great coach. Uh, but the players are the ones out there executing yeah. the plays, and they put them in the right spots, and then they got to go out there and execute. And it's no different from what LeBron does. Look, I think you know, really it's going to come down to, and I think it always does, the star players are going to step up and make plays, but then you always have those role players that do their job yep. and they make a difference. And yesterday, you look at what the bench did. You know, you look at Miller; he was huge in that game. Yep. Battier was huge in that game, and I felt you know the inability early in the game for Boston to cut down on the easy buckets for Miami. I think you know they just really never recovered from that. And when they tried to cut down, I feel like a lot of times LeBron would get into the lane and kick it out to Miller, and KG was Miami went small. And KG had to guard Miller and had trouble getting out to the perimeter to get a hand, you know, hand in Miller's face. Rightfully so. I mean, I think that's kind of an unusual matchup for someone like Garnett, who, you know, is probably arguably one of the best defensive players in the league. And Miller was able to drill. Uh, he started off three for four, had eight first half points. Do these ancillary players? I think the Heat actually have the advantage, which is something last year you wouldn't be able to say, I think. And yeah. that's been the, kind of another difference. Oh, absolutely. And, and you look at, you know, so, you know, there's key points, and I was kind of watching this as this game was developing. And, you know, with about maybe eight minutes to go in the second quarter, KG was 5 of 6 with 11 points. The rest of the team, 2 of 16, 6 points. And, yep. you know, that tells you right there, obviously, he wasn't getting help. Now, obviously, you want to have. KG continued being aggressive. Doc was interviewed after the end of the first quarter, and he said, look, Rondo's got to be more aggressive. They want to be more aggressive. Well, look, it's not necessarily offensive looking for his. Being aggressive, attacking the rim, I felt he took some bad shots in that first quarter, and then he settled down. He got those guys some easy buckets. But you look at it, and you talked about the ancillary players. 
I think that's going to be huge. I felt Keelan Doolin came off the bench and gave them some nice run. I thought Stizma, you know, Stizma, he played great. You know, I felt he rebounded the ball. He made buckets when he got some easy looks. He made them. He made free throws. Um, He did what he had to do in that game, and I think it's going to come down to that look. LeBron, Wade, they're going to do what they have to do. I expect Paul Pierce to come back and have a better game tomorrow. KG's been on fire. I expect Rondo to do his thing. I think Bass needs to continue Okay, to knock down shots because I think with him in there and both teams play similar style where they want to spread you with LeBron and Wade if you're the Miami Heat and then Miller, you want uh, uh, Chalmers, you want those guys knocking down shots. The same with Boston where you want to spread the floor and now you got shooters all around. You got KG knocking down shots. You have Bass knocking down shots. Ray Allen, I think the key is going to come down to, obviously, and it may sound simplistic, who's going to make buckets because really in that first quarter – Boston had some pretty good looks. Ray had two or three threes wide open that he normally makes. They didn't go down for him. Yeah, Doc always says it's a make or miss league. I love Doc's you know term where hey look it's a make or miss league. Yeah, and you know Boston didn't make shots in the first quarter. Uh, you know in the second quarter they recovered, uh, and then I think the X factor somebody's got to step up for the Boston Celtics besides KG, Pierce, and Rondo. Uh, and obviously, Ray has to shoot the ball better. I mean, look, you look at what he's done. One for seven. Yeah, I mean, Ray Allen shooting career lows, nine points per game, 41% from the field, um, from the floor, 65% from the free throw line, and 27% from the three-point uh, line. I mean, look, those are not – Ray Allen obviously is not right. I mean, yeah. look, I'm not – you know, he's not going to say it, but look, everybody – any person that knows basketball, any person that's watched this guy's career, I played against him in college, the guy's a pure shooter. And when he's shooting 27% from the line, from the three-point line, and they're wide-open looks. I'm not talking contested threes. Yeah. They're wide-open looks. You know, Obviously, his legs aren't there. So I think somebody else is going to have to step up. Bass, I think, is that guy that needs to step up. He needs to have another huge game yeah. for them to adv- advance in this series. I think he start, Bass started like one for six, finished four for 11. And yeah, you're right. Doug Collins, the Sixers coach, kind of conceded Ray Allen towards the end of that series, realized that, hey, Ray Allen is not a threat right now. It's just it's crazy. It's mind blowing to think about since he has been such a efficient shooter shooter going forward. Uh, you know, in his career, uh, what do you think? So prediction wise, you obviously feel the Celtics have a chance here. It's you know only one game. It was after a travel day, after you know pretty grueling series. What do you think? What do you actually think is going to happen? I mean. Well, you know, if I if I could, you know, uh, I guess look into tomorrow night and 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 predict, you know, what was going to happen, I would say Boston definitely is going to look at this film. Doc can look at it and say, "Hey, look, guys, we can't give up so many easy buckets," and that's you know that's a given. You don't even need to review the film to look at it and say, "All right, well, you look at points in the paint." And I think in the first half, you know, really all but maybe you know twenty percent, you know, fifteen percent. Of, of Miami's uh, points were inside the paint and they were layups they were you know off of either turnovers or in transition so you know uncontested shots that we got to cut that out and then hey guys look you're professionals you know look you got to knock down shots if you get open looks uh, you have to knock them down uh, and, and and Doc always and I love what you know this is the reason why I think Doc's one of the best he uses the word trust a lot and when they're moving the basketball and guys are involved and they're trusting each other and the ball's moving around uh, they're at their best. And I think, you know, you're going to see a lot more of that. They need to cut down on the ball sticking to one side, guys trying to do it on their own. And he talked about that where he was interviewed at halftime where, look, guys he felt got away from the offense and trusting in each other and moving the basketball around. And then we're going to have to have, and I'm calling it now, Bass has to step up. He has to knock down some of those open looks that Ronald he was will get getting. To him. 
And he, you know, he was, I think, the X factor in a lot of these games. You know, obviously with guys going down, uh, you know, I think KG has been KG. I think that's another matchup too. And, you know, they got him the ball. You know, yeah. but Ronnie Terrier, I don't care. You know, there, there's no way that he can guard him one on one. So I think they need to continue to obviously milk KG, but other guys need to step up. And I think it starts with Bass needs to be huge in this game right here in order for Boston to get one down to Miami. And you know that the Celtics obviously aren't going to make it easy. That's one of the good things about this team is they're so resilient that you know the Celtics are definitely going to. It's it's going to be a series. And like you said, I think one of your, the key things you said during this podcast is that. You know, LeBron's going to get his, Wade's going to get his, but it has to be difficult. And that's one thing I think you can kind of count on for the Celtics. They're going to make it at least difficult. That's why I don't buy into the whole, like, five-game series. I think it's going to go at least six. Um, I actually, I do personally think Miami does pull away, maybe in six. I'm not sure if they could close it out in the Garden, but I think that uh, one thing one thing is for sure, and that's the Celtics are going to make this at least a difficult process. And Right now, you know that they're going. You know they're watching the tape of LeBron holding the ball up in front of KG, being like, "Yeah," and you know they're watching some of the tape and be like, "Wow, if we just hit this shot, if we kept our composure here, if we didn't come out two for twelve in the third quarter, we came out a little stronger in the first quarter. Maybe this is different." And I think they could steal one down in Miami. If they steal one down, down in Miami, you never know. So, oh, absolutely, I agree with you. And I, you know, you look at how they ended the third quarter, um, and I think that really. Um, they're going to look back to that. And I think that was a key point in the basketball game where LeBron had the long pass from Dwayne Wade off of a rebound, uncontested layup. And then on the next possession, it was off of a bad possession by Boston. They come down and Dwayne Wade comes off a pick and roll situation, goes right down the lane, uncontested layup, doc timeout. And I think that's how they really closed out the third quarter. So they're going to look back to a lot of things. But I think overall, as a whole, I think the key theme is is – as you talked about, make it difficult for him. No uncontested layups. You obviously you're going to get looks because they did a good job getting wide open looks. You got to knock down shots, and then I think you know that X factor. Somebody needs to step up, and I think in this case right here, you know Brandon Bass, he has to have a better game. Four of eleven from the field, and you look at the stat line. And I think the other thing too is you look at what he did from the rebounding standpoint. You know he had two rebounds. <laughs> You know, two rebounds, yeah, eight points. <laughs> you know, so his stat line definitely needs to be improved. You can't have, you know, your four guy. Really, essentially, that's what he is getting two rebounds. Yeah, um, that's not going to cut. You it. have to, you have to hope that Pierce also gets more than two rebounds. I mean, the rebounding thing was in the fifty-fifty balls, but you know, to be a minus fifty, it's one thing to get beat in the rebound rebounding department, but it, like to get beat that badly and have your, you know, your four only have two rebounds and Pierce only have two rebounds. I mean, you expect that from you know your shooting guard and your point guard, but not not necessarily your front court. Um, now, will you be doing any more stuff for Green Street? Or obviously, you know, you have the great piece on Spolstra and how he kind of came about and your relationship with him. Are you going to be doing stuff going forward? Or absolutely, yeah. I'm uh, look look out for uh, two more pieces. I have. I'm going to be speaking with some uh, scouts. Maybe take you walk you through the uh, mind of an NBA scout. Uh, tell you what they're looking for when they evaluate not only college players but uh, European players and then also free agents as it pertains to how they fit with their team. And then I'm going to do a piece on. Um, uh, I'm, 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 I'm going to tease you a little bit on this one, but it's a uh, old school player, uh, somebody that was a uh, really great player back in their day. Um, he's a very dear friend, and I'm going to do a piece on him as well, too, and just talk about the differences between now, uh, the game now, and then when he played. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm going to be doing some more pieces uh, moving forward as well, too. All right, very cool. And uh, to everyone listening, make sure you check out the Celtics page on WEI.com. Paul Flannery for us right now is down in Miami, and uh, we look forward to game two Wednesday night. And, uh, 
obviously, Malcolm, thanks for coming on, and look forward to reading those pieces. Yeah, I had a blast, and uh, definitely uh, looking forward to doing more. All right, cool. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.